You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. This morning, I'm so glad that you're with us. We do have a couple of baptisms today I'm excited about, some this morning and then one tonight, and so we're going to have a good time with that. Teenagers, teen activity tonight after church, doing volleyball and pizza, costs $5, bring a change of clothes, we'll be done at 8.30, and uh, hope you'll stick around, we're going to have some fun, and it's just good to get teenagers together and have a good time. You may notice Brother Deharo's not giving the announcements this morning, and uh, that's because Miss Jen, his wife, uh, uh, had a, a, a sickness come over her a couple days ago, and they had to go to the ER, and they thought for a while they're going to have to do surgery uh, on her gallbladder and some different things. And so right now we're still waiting to hear if that's the case. She's been in the hospital two days and two and a half days. And uh, so pray for them. They're still in limbo figuring out what they're gonna, uh, what's going to happen there. The last I heard anyway, and uh, I know Brother Mike and Miss Jen could use your prayers. <clears throat> but uh, we're going to have a time tonight at the teen activity, even without the Deharos, okay? But uh, no, but pray for them, please. We love them dearly. And uh, they're, so, they're such a great, been such a great addition to our staff this past year. I do have one thing I need to show you, okay? Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Should I wait till later? They're not, they're not ready for this. Okay, let me just walk over here so you can all see this, okay? Check this out. Look at these socks. I don't know if you can tell in the back, okay? But uh, I, I learned that the further back you sit, the better I look. So I think that's why the people congregate in the back there. But uh, these are Jack Russell Terrier socks, all right? And uh, Brother Cadmiel Aduna got those for me, one of our teenagers and, uh, well, I shouldn't have said it publicly. Now your reward is taken away. But anyway, but, uh, no, I'm thankful for, for, for him. But uh, he but I got these because we have, we have a Jack Russell Terrier, if you didn't know, named Bowser. And uh, I've been meaning to share this story as you're still trying to find the book of Luke, chapter 10. But uh, I, I, uh, we uh, were doing our taxes recently. I had all my taxes done. I had the, had the state tax. I don't normally do taxes. I just kind of lie about it. But, um, no, I, I had them all done. And uh, so we had them all lined up. I don't do the e-file thing. I send them in because I'm, I'm getting old. And uh, we had a check written out and everything. It was all right there, ready to go. And left it on the, on the coffee table for just a couple minutes. I left. We came back. And literally, the dog had eaten my taxes. He still hasn't landed from when I kicked him. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But... Uh, you know, we used to have kids do this, right? You know, the, the dog ate my homework. So I sheepishly, there's a, corp, there's a company that, that uh, helps Christians with their taxes, and especially pastors. And so I contacted them. Email. I don't know, I've never had to say this before, and I'm incredibly embarrassed. The dog ate my taxes. <laughs> do you have copies? Can you please send them? I'm so sorry. The lady emailed me back the next morning at like 6 a.m. She said, in 28 years of working with people and her taxes, this is the first I've heard. She said, I've moved you to the front of the queue. She said, we, we were going to put you, no, you're at the front. She said, our whole office is dying in laughter. I'm, like, I'm glad. I'm glad I can be your source of joy, you know? And, uh, and she's like, we're all dog people. What kind of dog is it? Can you send pictures? Uh, your tax person ever take that much care for you? 
So I sent her back a picture of Bowser, and I said, this is our, our Jack Russell terrorist, is what we call him, you know, instead of Jack Russell Terrier. And he's sitting there all innocent with his ears up, like, what did I do, you know? I should have sent her a picture of, like, newspaper shreddings and stuff, you know? But uh, anyway, so she texts me back, this hilarious, he's super, we had this whole conversation. But anyway, so he's a... Uh, He's something else, that's for sure, but that's, that's our little Bowser there, so I figured I needed to share that with you. I should have worked it into the message somehow, but I don't, I'm preaching on mercy, and I have none for that dog, so I'm going to tell you, I don't know if they can work it in there, you know, but Luke chapter number 10, in our series here on parables, uh, we're looking at today a parable you've probably heard of. In fact, this is a, one of the most famous stories ever written, I believe, in all of history, most people would know this terminology even if they did not know what the actual story was about. But in chapter 10 of the book of Luke, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. It is truly a beautiful parable. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's, it's I don't know what the word is, iconic. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that has lasted and so obviously Jesus knew what he was doing. Of course he does. When he gave this parable, he knew that people would know it, when people would remember it. And we could spend literally weeks on this parable. And so it was very hard for me to narrow down what really to go about in this parable. I want to preach on the Good Samaritan and the phrase that's not in there, but won't you be my neighbor? How many of you watched Mr. Rogers as you were growing up? That's why you're in church today, because you watched Mr. Rogers. He was good. He was good stuff, all right? In the last parable that we looked at, now, now keep in mind, I'm kind of a little bit going chronologically through the parables, and, and so the last parable that we saw, I believe, was the book of Matthew, and it was the topic of forgiving the injurer, forgiving the person that injures you. The next parable that Jesus gave was this one. Where the topic is not forgive the injurer, the topic is help the injured. So forgive the person that injured you, but then you're supposed to turn around and help the person that's been injured. So that's what we're looking at here. And I want to look down through the scriptures, and I want to read it all first, and then we're going to go kind of verse by verse through it, give you a couple thoughts at the end that I think would be a blessing to you. Father, I pray that you bless now our time in the scripture, in the Bible, in the word of God, I pray that you would take your word and magnify it today. Lord, I, I pray, Lord Jesus, you'd be uplifted and glorified in our midst today and that you would get the glory for everything done. Bless, I pray, this message in our time together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's read the passage together. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So that question prompted the parable to be told. Well, who's my neighbor? And we're going to look at this in just a second, but in case you've never heard the Good Samaritan story, I think you need to hear it before I go through it, okay? So here's the parable. Again, a parable is a story, an earthly story, with a heavenly meaning. It's a story that helps us to see an analogy that helps us understand a spiritual truth better. Verse 30, and Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment. 
left him naked on the street there and wounded him. In other words, they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This reminds me of a terrible joke that I'm going to share with you right now. Did you hear this? <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say it. All right, let's move on. You want to hear it? All right. It's a mother-in-law joke. Is that okay? Some of you are like, now you got to say it, all right? I came to church for this, pastor. All right, so here's the joke, okay? And it's a terrible joke. I admit it. It's one that Brother Weldon told me, so if you want to judge anybody, judge him. I'm just kidding. I don't think he did. story goes like this. A man finds a genie and a lamp. He rubs the lamp. The genie pops out. And he's like, oh, man, I, you know, do I get three wishes? And the genie says, yes, you get three wishes. But everything I give to you, I give double to your mother-in-law. He's like, ah. All right. He says, well, I wish for a billion dollars. And so he says, granted. And he gives the mother-in-law two billion dollars. And so then the genie says, what's your second wish? He said, well, I wish I could have houses on every continent and in every state in the world that I could just go to at any time. And so the genie says, granted, there you go. And now your mother-in-law has two of them. And he says, what's your third wish? And the man said, I want you to beat me half to death. We should probably pray and dismiss at this time. And you need to go to a better church, all right? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> I love my mother-in-law. I would never tell that joke to her. All right. Say, where'd you get that? Leaving him half dead, all right? That's what, the, that's what the text says, okay? Verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And if you didn't get the joke, just see me later. I'll explain it to you, all right? And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him. I'm sorry, that joke is still just stuck with me. I'm... And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, which we learned last time was basically two days' worth of work, and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's break it down and just go a little bit through the verses here. I'd like to explain what it's talking about and then give you some thoughts that you could apply to your life and take home with you. Let's look at the introduction here to the parable, verse 25, where this lawyer comes to Jesus. What's a lawyer in scripture? It's not like, you know, the guy you see, accidentes, you know, and you have to call that number. That's not really the same idea. It's more of someone that knows the Mosaic law and they were giving guidance to people about how to keep the law of Moses. And so uh, the, this lawyer comes to him, someone that knows the law. And the Bible says he tempted him. What does that mean? The word tempt means to put to a test, to try to entrap. So this lawyer is coming to Jesus, the guy that knows the law, and he's asking Jesus a question about the law to try to see how is Jesus' logic in regard to the law. Is Jesus really who he says he is? He's trying to incriminate him a little bit. He's trying to trick Jesus. And, you know, 
how do you trick the one who, you know, is the law, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who wrote the law with his finger, you know? You can't do that. So verse 26, and he said unto him, Jesus said unto the lawyer, what is written in the law? How readest thou? So I love that. Jesus, what's he do? He asks a question. He answered a question with a question. Now, let me ask you a question in, re- in regarding the question that Jesus asked in regarding to the question of the lawyer. Does God ever ask a question he doesn't know the answer to? No, he doesn't. Why is Jesus, when you read scripture and you come to a place where Jesus or God is asking a question, never think, well, God just doesn't know the answer. No, he's asking the question for a reason. So he's asking this disciple, uh, this uh, lawyer, a question to get him to think, and also, I think, to get us to think. So what's he do? He asks the lawyer a question about the law. You're an expert in the law, lawyer. How readest thou? What does the law say? That you could inherit eternal life, that you could go to heaven. And so in verse 27, and he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength and all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. So he's going to quote from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he's also going to quote from Leviticus. So he says, you know, and, and by the way, this lawyer summarizes the law perfectly. He summarizes the law perfectly, just as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 22. He summarized it really, really well. And, uh, and then he says, and thy neighbor as thyself. What's he saying there? He's saying, if I want to inherit eternal life, what I see from the law is I have to keep the law. I have to love Christ, I have to honor the Ten Commandments, I have to, you know, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God, the last six deal with my relationship to my neighbor, so what I see in order to inherit eternal life is I've got to love God and love my neighbor to fulfill the whole law. Look what Jesus says in verse 28, very interesting, and he answered and said unto him, thou hast answered right, wait, what? Jesus is saying you have to keep the law to be saved? This do, and thou shalt live. Was Jesus teaching work salvation? No. In fact, he was doing the opposite. When he said to the lawyer, keep the whole law, the lawyer knew you can't keep the whole law. He knew the opposite. He knew that it was impossible to perfectly keep the law. He knew what the lawyer was up to. He knew what the lawyer was trying to get at, and so he turns around and says, well, what do you read in the law how to, keep, how, to, how to inherit eternal life? Well, you have to keep the whole law. Okay, do that, and you'll live. If you can keep the whole law, and if you have no sin, you can go to heaven. Now the lawyer is thinking, oh boy, that's not good. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who's my neighbor? What's the word justify means? To put right with. It means to declare righteous or to vindicate. He's trying to vindicate himself. He's trying to declare himself righteous. He's, trying, he's pronouncing a verdict that someone is in full accordance with the law. In other words, he was looking to, to vindicate himself by asking Jesus a question. He was looking to say, hey, I'm righteous. I keep the law because, I mean, who, after all, who is my neighbor? And so that's what he's trying to do there, and uh, he, he's really just being self-righteous. And so in, in answer to the self-righteousness of this lawyer, Jesus gives a parable. 
he gives a parable. And now we're jumping in to the parable. Look at verse number 30. And Jesus answering and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus begins the parable. Keep this in mind, because you're going to notice that Jesus' answer is different than the question. The question was, and who is my neighbor? That's the question that, the, the, that this man is asking. Now, we're going to get to the answer in just a little bit. But notice that Jesus goes beyond who your neighbor is and focuses on what a neighbor does. He goes beyond who your neighbor is and focuses on what a neighbor does. So this man's coming from Jerusalem, Jericho, which is between 15 and 18 miles of a walk. When you come from, anywhere you go from Jerusalem is down. Jerusalem's on a hill. So as they would travel down from this area to Jericho, it actually at the time was a very dangerous place. Not only was it rocky and, and all of that, but it was known to be a place where thieves and robbers inhabited. They inhabited this city. Now, a priest or a Levite would not be attacked and robbed, because we're going to see those two in just a second, because they were of the temple. But the common people, they were always in danger of being robbed on that road. And, and so Jesus knew that. In fact, there was a place on that road called Adumim, which is known as the Pass of Blood, because of this, the blood that, that was shed there. So it was a thief-infested road. And so Jesus said, here's this guy. He's walking this road, verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, when the priest saw the guy that was beaten and naked and half dead, he passed by on the other side. Now, I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the man lying on the ground half dead looks up and he sees a priest and he's like, oh, thank goodness. A religious leader. Thank goodness, a priest that serves God in the temple. Oh, I'm saved. And the priest looks at him and just walks by on the other side. There are some places on that road, you can look at it online, that are so narrow that if someone fell, you'd have to step over them. It's not a wide road. It's a mountain pass. So really, I mean, how wide could it be? Here's a guy lying on the ground. I always used to think he was way off in the ditch. No, he's on the road. And the guy passes by on the other side. Don't want to get involved with that. Don't know what's going on here. The religious leader, the priest, passes by. Just walks around him, verse 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So another religious person, a Levite, assisted the priests. Uh, Levites interpreted the law. Levites led in worship. Surely this church worker, surely this person will help. I think uh, that we need to know that our salvation and deliverance does not lie in a priest or a pastor or religious leader or in anybody in a church. That's not where our salvation comes from. Our deliverance and healing comes from Jesus Christ. Now look down if you would please here. The same thing, the guy passes by on the other side. Verse, someone said about, uh, one commentator said about these religious leaders that they had evidently left God back in the temple and had neither time nor compassion for an unfortunate fellow Jew. So they just did their duty at the temple and just said, God, you stay there. I'm going to go about my life. Verse 33 is so awesome. 
And if you don't know the history, it's, it, you need to know. It's a curveball. It's a gut punch to this lawyer. Look at verse 33. So here's this guy, this story. Here's a man half dead. The, the priest comes by. The Levite comes by, won't touch him, you know, looks at him and just keeps going. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The hero of Jesus' story is a Samaritan. Why is that significant? John chapter number 4 verse 9 tells us that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews were, we would say, stuck up, pompous, arrogant. Samaritans were half-breeds in some people's eyes. In other words, they were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And because of that, the Jews said, you're not not like a pure-blood Jew, so you're disgusting. We don't want anything to do with you. We want to talk about prejudice. They they prejudged the Samaritans because they were half Jewish, half Gentile. And so Jesus is telling this man that the hero of this story is somebody that your people despise. A Samaritan man. Somebody that you hate and that normally would probably dislike you too because of the way you treat them. But the Samaritan was the one that stopped. Not your own people. Not your religious leaders. The enemy to you, stopped. So it was, it, was a, it was a big deal that Jesus uses, verse 34 and 35, and the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, again, just used to treat wounds, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, the next day, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave his own money and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. Hey, I'm leaving an open tab for this guy. You take care of him, and I'll take care of the the cost. I'll pay for it. So here's the clincher to the whole parable. Look, if you would, at verse 36. Jesus ends the parable with a question. Another question. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor? Was neighbor. Unto him that fell among the thieves. Who was the neighbor? Jesus asked, who was the neighbor here? Verse 37, and he, the lawyer said, he that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, go, you go and do likewise. What did Jesus say? When you look at the parable and you look at the question the Samaritan, or the, the lawyer asked, and you look at the answer Jesus gave, they don't match up. You see, because the lawyer was asking the question, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, you. What? Who is my neighbor? You are the neighbor. Well, I don't understand. No, I'm wondering who my neighbor is. And Jesus says, no, you are the one that is supposed to be a neighbor. Instead, you see the difference there? One of them is like, you know, it doesn't have to do with you. You know, who is the neighbor? And he's kind of passing it off like, well, you know, and, and if I run across some people, and Jesus says, no, 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 you're going to run across people that you are supposed to be a neighbor to. You don't have to worry about who your neighbor is. You are the neighbor. You are the neighbor. You are the good Samaritan. You're supposed to be in the story. So that's what he's saying. So he's saying, you are the neighbor, so be neighborly. 
Be merciful. Be kind. Show goodness to others. Jesus is putting the onus on that person, on that lawyer, and he's putting it on us too and saying, you are the neighbor. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to walk by when people are in need? Or are you going to do something? Are you going to be a neighbor? Are you going to be a neighbor? Verse 37, though, he says that the neighbor was somebody that showed mercy. That's what the neighbor does. What's a good neighbor do? In this passage, the good neighbor shows mercy. That's what the neighbor does. You know, another word for mercy in the Bible is loving kindness. Loving kindness. Well, what is mercy? I'll be merciful to people. I won't, you know, I won't, I won't punish them. No, loving kindness is what we're talking about. Loving kindness. I want to just give you a couple of thoughts this morning as, as we're, you know, more than halfway through the message here about what does mercy look like? What does being a good neighbor look like? Because according to this, a good neighbor shows mercy. So what does that look like? Number one, I want to say this. What does mercy look like? Mercy sets aside personal differences. Mercy lays aside personal differences. Here's a Samaritan and a Jewish man. These are, these are not people that have business dealings with one another. These are not people that have conversations with one another. These are not people that greet each other on the street when they see each other. That's not what the relationship was. There was animosity. There, were, there was pettiness. There was jealousy. There was anger. There was all of this between them. But the merciful Good Samaritan looked beyond the faults of that Jewish man and saw the need. Saw the need. That's what he did. Look, you don't withhold mercy because of petty differences. You don't withhold mercy because of prejudices. What's prejudice? Prejudging. It means I know I look at you and I can already see what kind of person you are. That's wrong. We always say don't judge a book by its cover. Well, we shouldn't do that. The Samar- look, there, there is no room in the life of a Christian heart filled with Christ for pettiness and injustice and prejudice. There's no room in that heart for that. There's no room in our heart for that. This, the Samaritan could have looked at the man and said, oh, this guy's a Jew? Man, I know how they treat all of us. I ain't helping him. I ain't doing anything for them. I know, I know he votes Democrat. I ain't voting for him. I ain't helping him. Man, I know he, he loves this person. I know he does it. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about? We have a lot of people that just judge people based upon skin color. As soon as they see the skin color, they know what that person's like. We would call that prejudice, amongst other things. You're prejudging someone. Someone comes to church and they're not dressed exactly right. Are we prejudging that person? Someone has a haircut that you don't particularly agree with. Are we prejudging? And what I'm saying is when we see people in need, mercy steps beyond our prejudging and says, I'm going to offer help. We've had strange people come to our church in this city. But I hope that we would have mercy and see a need that's beyond the fault. That's what the Good Samaritan did. Have have you ever stopped to think about some of the things we fight about? Petty squabbles and things. How many churches have split because of the color of the carpet? How many families have divided at Thanksgiving because of a sports team or some silly argument? I've read stories of churches that have split for the silliest thing. I have a book in my office that tells a bunch of reasons why churches have split. You want to hear one that I think is just ridiculous? So this church one time had a potluck. And the, they had everybody sit down and they were coming and they were, just, they were just giving plates of food to people. And so this older man that had been in the church a long time was seated next to a younger teen, a teenager like 17, 18 years of age. 
And if you have ever had a teenager in your home, uh, they eat everything. They're like locusts. I mean, they just come through and it's like, it's gone, you know. But anyway, and so the, they came and they gave the older man a plate of food first. They deferred him, they served him first. And then they came and they gave the younger man a plate of food. But the older man sitting next to the younger man looked over at his plate and saw that he didn't get as much food as the younger person. So he pitches a fit, throws, you know, throws his whole big temper tantrum, and eventually causes a church split because of that. Now, can I tell you something? Every time we go to a restaurant, if my wife and I order the same thing, she always gets a bigger plate. You know why? I see it that way. I don't think it's true, but every time, you can ask her, is this not true? I look at her plate, and she's like, you think I got the better piece, a steak, don't you? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, they're looking at you and looking at me, and they think, oh, you need the bigger steak? And so I'm always viewing it that way, like, your food looks better than my food. I mean, it's just, I, I'm bent to that. But can you imagine splitting a church over that? That's why we're never having a potluck again. We're just never going to do it. It's ridiculous. It's pettiness. Look, when there are people in need in your family, when there are people in need at your work, when there are people in need on the street, when there are people in need anywhere, we as Christians have to look beyond the fault of that person and see the need. If we're not going to do that, who is? Who are you going to be a neighbor to? You disagree with a family member. You know, uh, uh, co-workers, uh, they have all the wrong views about politics. Your neighbor's dog uses your lawn for the restroom and they don't pick it up. Mercy says, but that's a soul that needs saving. Are you merciful? Are you being neighborly by setting aside personal differences? What does mercy do? Secondly, mercy puts ourselves in someone else's shoes. Mercy puts ourselves in someone else's shoes. Now, what's amazing to me is Jesus uses a certain word three times in this passage. And the certain word that Jesus used is the word certain. In verse number 25, a certain lawyer. In verse 30, a certain man. In verse number 33, it says, and a certain Samaritan. So he's really making this personal to this man. He's saying, this lawyer, this random guy comes up, and now he's saying, here's this certain person, this certain person. And, uh, and, and to me, he's, he's making it personal, and he's saying basically, which one are you? A cert, you're a certain man. Are you this certain man or this certain man? Are you, uh, if you were beat up, what would you hope for? Oh, you'd want a neighbor? Would you have cared if that person, if that certain person that came to you was a Samaritan? No, you wouldn't care if he was a Samaritan. You think the guy half dead on the road was lying there and saying, help me. Oh, you're a Samaritan. Keep moving. Keep moving. No, no. He, you don't care about that. It, it, it's, it's, you're going to get help. How would that Jewish man have treated that Samaritan after this event? You would think he would have made a friend. I mean, you took care of me. What's the thought? Put your, yourself in some certain person's shoes. Put yourself in someone else's shoes. Are you that certain person that needs help? Are you that certain person that needs to help? Uh, some random person? You must look at yourself through, uh, and be empathetic to someone else's condition. I read a quote. It's kind of funny. Somebody said, one of life's major mistakes is being the last member in the family to come down with the flu after all the sympathy has run out. Isn't that truth? First person that gets sick, they're getting soup, they're getting Panera. Oh, let's take care of you. But if you get sick later, man, we're tired. 
you know, you've exhausted all that. We've all been sick. Get over it. The Samaritan, though, he went where he was. He went to the place where that person was. You know, sometimes we just want justice. But if we stopped and understood the situation of other people, if we stopped and put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else, what would we do? If we were that person, what would we want? See, we, we want mercy, but we don't like to give it. Can I say to you that the Bible, Jesus said, in what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. If you don't show mercy, why would you expect any? And that's why it's a good thing for you to go through things, and it's a good thing for you to experience trials and things like that, because when God shows you mercy, it makes you realize, oh, I should be merciful to others too. But if you want mercy from God, you better be merciful. You want mercy from others, you better be merciful. We can't be predisposed to judging people. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. People are suffering. People are suffering. The famous painter Rembrandt, at the end of his life, painted his most famous picture, which was called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Now, when he was younger, he, everybody thought he was, I think he was Dutch. Everybody thought he was arrogant. Everybody thought he was proud. But then Rembrandt began to lose things. He lost his son. Then he lost his daughter. Then he lost his other daughter. Then he lost his wife. Then he was living with a woman, and she got sent to a mental hospital. Then he married again, and that wife died. At the end of his life, he painted one of his most famous, if not his most famous picture, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Vincent van Gogh, another famous artist, of course, saw the painting later, and he said this, you can only paint this painting when you have died many deaths. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying, I can tell by what he painted that he's been through it. People in our world are suffering. And mercy says, hey, there should be some empathy to say, if I were laying on the street, I would want some help. Instead of saying, get up, dust yourself off, get to work. What does mercy do? What does the, what does the neighbor do? Mercy puts ourselves in someone else's shoes quickly. Number three, mercy usually costs something. Mercy usually costs something. Look at verse 34 and 35. So the Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, poured in oil and wine, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day on the morrow, when he had departed, he took out two pence, gave them to the host, and said to him, take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. So he cared for this man out of his own pocket. It cost him his money. It cost him some effort, because now he's, he's not riding his beast. He's putting the other man on the beast, and how do you get him up there? It's costing him energy. It's costing him time. It's costing him uh, his own savings and his own money that he worked for. There's a cost to it. You know what? There, there's always a cost to mercy. Jesus' mercy did not cost us anything, but it cost him everything. There was a cost for that. There was a cost to mercy, and, and there's going to be a cost of mercy to us. It may cost us laying aside our pride. It may cost us getting off our high horse. It may cost us uh, uh, you know, uh, helping someone unlovely. It may cost us time. It may cost us money. But Jesus may put someone in your path and say, be merciful to that person. And it might cost you. But guess what? You have a God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he can give back 
more than what you gave, more than it cost you. I think of our homeless ministry. It's a ministry of mercy. It's a ministry of loving kindness. That's what it is. It costs us, but it does not cost them. But that's the point. The point is to show mercy. Well, they don't deserve mercy. I'll tell you this. I read a story about Napoleon years ago, and there was a, a mother came up to Napoleon to seek pardon for her son. The young man had committed a crime. I, I told this story recently. The young man committed a crime twice, and, uh, and, and if he got what was just, he would have died. And the mother came up and said, but I don't ask for justice. Napoleon, I ask for mercy. And Napoleon said, but your son does not deserve mercy. And the mom said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. I'm asking for mercy. People don't, it's not that, I'll give you mercy because you've earned it. No. Jesus' mercy to us is not based upon anything we do. Is, that's what mercy is. You did not deserve it. You deserve justice. You deserve to pay for your own sins in hell. You deserved punishment. And Jesus says, but I'll show you mercy. I won't give you what you deserve. I'll give you loving kindness instead. That's mercy. Mercy usually costs something, but can I say lastly, mercy asks for nothing in return. We talked about the homeless ministry. Why is that an important ministry? We're doing things for people that can't do anything for us. And I think that's always a good thing. It's always a good thing to keep your motive right. I'll do something for you. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll do this for you because I want you to remember me during the Christmas season or my birthday. Oftentimes, we can have a motive that is not quite right for our mercy. But mercy asks for nothing in return. Mercy is a gift. Mercy is never self-righteous. Well, since I'm so much better than you, I will lower myself to help you that are in need. Once again, just to put myself on a higher pedestal than you, that's not mercy. That's arrogance. That's haughtiness. That's something God's going to say, really? Okay, let me tear you down a few pegs. That's not mercy. I'm going to save that. That's no good. The Samaritan gave, and he gave, and he said, and if there's not enough, I'll come back and give again. And he never said, and make sure the guy pays me back. Keep a tab. I want to know what he... No. That would not have been mercy. Mercy was, you don't deserve it. It's free. Here it is. There's a human being in need. There's a human being, a living soul that's in need, and so I'm going to meet the need. I wonder today, as we, look at this, as we look at this story, you know, are we willing to help people? Are we willing to lay aside our personal differences and remember that people are in need? Are we willing to put ourselves in someone else's shoe and say, how would I want to be treated if I was there? Are we willing to let mercy cost us something and ask for nothing in return? I want to show you one more thing, and we're done. Look, if you would, at verse number 31. There are two words in this verse that are so important. It says this in verse number 31, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way. Jesus is telling a story, and he basically says, and by some coincidence, this priest comes down. Just happenstance. Just a coincidence. Can I ask you a question? Are there coincidences with God? Or would you say... I think the sovereign God of the universe has his hands in everything. There's no coincidence here. There's no happenstance. 
There's no by chance. Jesus put those characters in the story. What I'm going to say to you about that is this. Maybe God is by chance going to put somebody in your path this week. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Oh, that's what you're going through? Pastor, just preached on that on Sunday. What a coincidence. You're looking for a good church? What a coincidence. You need counseling and like a class to go to for your married couple situation? What a coincidence. We would call them divine appointments, not coincidences. So maybe this week we don't look for the coincidences. We look for the appointments. Because it was no coincidence in the story. If you're here today... Can I just let you know that Jesus is the good Samaritan? You're the one in need. You are the one beaten down by this world. You're the one who by our own sins are left destitute and naked. By our own sins, we're left beaten and in despair. But it was Jesus who came to this earth and left where he was to come to where we are. And he paid at, per, at great personal cost to himself for our healing. Great personal cost. And then if you'll notice at the end there, he says, and spend what you will, and when I come again, I'll repay thee. And you know what? He's coming back. He's going to come back and still give us greater things after that for some unknown reason besides the fact that he is so loving and good and kind and merciful. And today, Jesus is willing to offer you help. Jesus is willing to offer you mercy if you'll come to him in faith. Asking forgiveness of your sins, turning away from anything, trying to earn your way to heaven, turning away from your unbelief, turning away from your doubt, and turning to Jesus and saying, I want Jesus only for my salvation. He's willing to give you that mercy today too. But can I just ask you as we close, don't be looking this week for, well, who's my neighbor? You're the neighbor. So let's go be neighborly. Father, I pray that you'd help us today to be on the lookout for the people that you put in our path. God, I pray.